Okay, since there is a, a unanimous hush that came across the room, um, I am going to say good afternoon. Okay, a little bit more enthusiasm. <laughs> so we are here in Milwaukee on the north side at Coffee Makes You Black at a, at a black historical uh, um, establishment. We don't have very uh, many of these. So when I say good afternoon, I need y'all to give me a little bit more energy, okay? Good afternoon, Coffee Makes You Black. There we go. I love it. So I am Alderwoman Shantia Lewis, and I represent not this district, but I represent the far northwest side, the new ninth. And on behalf of Alderman Stamper, who does represent this area, he wanted me to relay that you are in the Fighting 15th, and he is elated that you all are here and have chosen this location. So I just want to just welcome you all really briefly, and then I'm going to turn it over to Kari. But um, we are here to talk about something really, really serious and have yet another conversation. But what I want you all to do is really start throwing out, once we get to that point, really start throwing out solutions. Really start throwing out those things that you feel would be more impactful than what we've already been discussing, right? So this is gonna be um, sort of interactive. This is also gonna be one of those moments where I want each and every one of, one of us to leave saying we've accomplished something instead of just having a conversation. Is that okay? Yep. Okay, so we know um, our a wonderful senator is here in the building and uh, this is one of his passion projects. And so with that, I'm gonna say welcome to Milwaukee for those of you who are not from Milwaukee, um, but welcome to Coffee Makes You Black and let's get this started. I will turn it over to Kyrie. Oh, Coffee Makes You Black. <laughs> So my name, oh my So my name is Karee Pennybaker, and I'm a crowd mom's man volunteer survivor. I thought it was for me. Y'all could have pretended y'all were clapping for me. I mean, wow, that was right on time. Um, so before I introduce uh, my friend Corey, I'd like uh, any gun violence survivors to raise their hand. And that's the reason we are here. There are those of you who are going to be allies for those of us who are actual gun violence survivors and we need your help and your support. So for those who aren't gun violence survivors, I, I assure you, you do not want to walk a second in our shoes. My mom, Joyce, shot and killed herself on September 8, 1979. And I can't go back and save her life, but what I'm going to do is work with people like my friend Corey to save as many lives as I can. Now, I'm not going to recite his, uh, his, his senatorial record or his mayoral record, but what I will do is tell you what this man has meant to me. In 2016, when I ran for Congress in a district where no one believed I could win, and I didn't win. But I still ran anyway on a strong gun violence prevention platform and women's reproductive rights, because those are issues that matter to me. And it was on April 2nd, 2016, when Corey came to our office and gave an amazing speech. But afterwards, he spent an hour with me, part of which was outside in the rain, giving me advice on how to run. Now, Barack Obama made me believe I should run. He made me believe 
that I should pick up that clipboard, get some signatures, and get my name on a ballot. But this man made me believe that I could win. He spent some time with me when he didn't have to. And we've had several conversations since then about an issue that means the world to me, about gun violence. And he doesn't have to do that. And in the process of all these conversations we've had, he's never asked for something from me once. He just did it out of the kindness of his heart. And I wish we had more politicians like that. So without further ado, I give you my friend, Cory Booker. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, first of all, I heard that State Senator Lena Taylor is here. Is that, is that right? Yes. Where is she? Upstairs. Upstairs. I just want to say thank you. We are in your district. I honor you and your leadership, and I'm so grateful that you're here with us today. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. So, there is a powerful panel of folks here uh, that are with me today, and the, the real purpose is for us to have a conversation. I, I do not want to come here to give a long speech or anything, uh, but the issue we're talking about right now, gun violence, is an issue uh, that so many Americans feel about in a way that is deeply, deeply painful and deeply hurtful. Uh, not only that, there are people who aren't directly affected by this, but understand that we live in a nation where injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We live in a nation where something that affects one family directly affects us all indirectly. I've been to town halls now all throughout the country that hear parents who've never been directly affected by gun violence, but now when they send their child to school, feel that deep sense of fear and and, and worry about their children's safety, or when they send a kid out to their first concert, or when they go worship in their place of worship, they feel a sense of fear that shouldn't be in this nation. But we live in a country where someone that's my age, that in the course of our lives, more people have been murdered by gun violence than in every single war combined in our country. And so I'm looking forward to having a conversation with people whose lives have been direct, directly impacted and who have strong feelings about what we must do as a community together to do something about it. But I want you to know a little bit about me, first and foremost. This is an issue I don't come from, from a, as just from a policy perspective. It is deeply personal to me. I'm the only person in the United States Senate that lives in a low-income, black and brown community, the median income where I live, in my beautiful neighborhood is about $14,000 per household, according to the last census. In my community, I see the penetrating injustices that exist. I see that people who work full-time jobs still have to go to the bodega and use food stamps just to raise their family. I still live in a community where kids drink out of bottled water. There are 3,000 jurisdictions in America where children have twice the blood lead levels in Flint, Michigan. And you all know what I'm talking about. I live in a community where the asthma rates are off the charts, the environmental toxins, from the economic injustice, the environmental injustice, to even just the fact that we should not live in a country where anybody has to pay a more than a third of their uh, of the income in rent. And, and, and I talk about a lot of these issues because we often come at gun violence from one narrow perspective when it is really a public health issue, when there are many, many issues 
that are swirling around that creating climates in which violence happens, and we have to have a larger conversation. In my community, I am tired of seeing street-level shrines to children who have been murdered, candles and teddy bears if you drive around my community. I'm tired of going to funeral after funeral when the most perverse, unnatural things happen where parents bury children. I'm tired of knowing kids. In my neighborhood, I lived in the projects for almost 10 years, and child after child from Brick Towers where I lived have been murdered. The most recent was Shahad Smith at the top of my block last year where I lived, killed with an assault rifle. People in my neighborhood, 4th of July, it, it is not always happy and festive when you have children who hear those pops and those booms and exhibit symptoms of post-traumatic stress. Parents telling me that their kids hide when they hear fireworks. They duck for cover. I've sat there trying to stop a child from bleeding to death, a teenager shot in the chest multiple times watching the most gruesome, god-awful thing imaginable. Not glorified like we see on TV, foamy blood coming from the young man's mouth, trying to stop him from bleeding to death, and he dies. This is an issue for me that drives me every day, because I live in a neighborhood that understands that mass shootings are horrific and painful, but we must understand that every day in America, in the aggregate, we have a mass shooting. Every single day. I'm an African-American male, and my communities, look, black men are 6% of the nation's population, but we make up over 50% of the homicide victims. And we need to have more courageous empathy for each other. This, this problem can't be solved unless we begin to listen to the many different voices from our veterans committing suicide at rates that are unacceptable in a nation that literally sings in its song that we are the home of the brave. But yet when men and women come home, they don't find one. folks who are struggling with mental illness in a country where our biggest mental health institutions are jails and prisons. And then we do things to people in jail and prison that compound mental illness, that trigger mental illness, like solitary confinement, like juvenile solitary confinement. And so this is an issue that we have to talk about in all of its manifestations and understand that every day, every hour that passes, there's another community grieving. Folks don't understand. One gunshot. In my neighborhood, there's an IHOP. One shooting in that IHOP. One family, immigrant family, having their lives torn asunder. But it was more than that. People stopped going to the IHOP, so they canceled the night shift. People lost jobs, lost income. <coughs> Parents now struggling to find a way to make ends meet. These things don't just happen and go away. They tear, they ripple out, they penetrate. Those wounds are carried with folks. So I feel a sense of urgency. I, I'm going to bring a light to this problem, not just when I was mayor, not just as a senator, but God willing, if I'm president of the United States, I'm going to bring a fight to this issue because I learned in my small 
church growing up as a little boy, that faith without works is dead. And I'm tired of hearing people who all they have to offer is thoughts and prayers. We are better than this. We are stronger than this. We can have more empathy and more love. We can change this. These problems are not bigger than we are. And I'm really looking forward to the conversation. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit down here. I am so grateful to be in this community. And I'm going to start it off with, with Karee over here. Maybe you can open up and maybe tell us a little bit more. You, you were, you've been so generous to share with me a lot of your motivation, why you are such a leader, what drives you every day. You're one of those people who turns your pain into purpose, uh, turns your wounds into work. And I just would love to hear a little bit more uh, about uh, your perspective on these issues. So I can tell you uh, there are a number of you in this room, including the senator, that I know better than I know my own mom. She shot herself when I was only 20 months old, and it wasn't until I was uh, about 38 that I learned what her favorite color was. It wasn't until I was 39 that I learned what her birthday was because I bought her death certificate online. And it was for the majority of my life that I didn't even know how to talk about this issue. It, it, it is painful to me. But it got to a point where I met uh, fellow gun violence survivors who then made me feel empowered, that I, I had a moral obligation to control my own circumstance, to own this, so I could prevent another family, another community, from feeling the, the, the never-ending nightmare that I have to go through. When I meet awesome people like, like Tatiana, I mean, it, she is absolutely amazing. And it is a crying shame that adults like me and the rest of you haven't done enough to make sure that her future has not been better than ours. That's why I do this. I have sat with gun violence survivors like Deborah that's sitting right here. We, we've cried together. It is utterly heartbreaking to live with what we have to live with. And to see that so many people who are paid to listen to us that fail to do so, that's why I ran for Congress in 2016. That's why I continue to fight for this issue, because I know every 25 minutes, someone is going to shoot and kill themselves, just like my mom did. I know it happens more than once a day in this state. I know that every 14 hours, someone is shot and killed in the city of Milwaukee. That is unacceptable to me. It is unacceptable that we are losing generations of young people to gun violence, and it's something we, we should be stopping, but we fail to do so. That's why I'm here today. Thank you. And you pointed out. I'm here. I want to say hello to you. It's Miss Smith, right? Washington. Miss Washington. I'm sorry. Miss Washington. I've read about you before I came here. You have an amazing story. You're an amazing leader. Could you tell folks a little bit about yourself? Thank you. Hi, everyone. I'm Tatiana. Oh, sure. I think she might be lower if she stands up. <laughs> is, that, is that okay? Is that good? Okay. Uh, I'm 18. I'm a senior at Rufus King High School. Woo, Rufus! Go Generals. <laughs> um, about a little over two years ago, I lost my Aunt Sherda to gun violence. Her husband shot and killed her before turning the gun on himself. Um, there are two children, my little cousins, who were 8 and 12 at the time, were present when that happened. Um, and I've Again, like there's this MLK quote of either you can transform, transform your pain or transfer your pain. I said to transform my pain into action. Um, last year, after March for Our Lives events ended, I joined other students from all over the state and did a 50 mile march um, from Madison to Janesville. Uh, thank you. 
Um, and I'm now the executive director of 50 Miles More, and we're trying to get other young people around the country to host their own 50 Mile March against an NRA-backed politician. Um, and I also work, oh, thank you. <laughs> I also work with the Brady Campaign and Center to Prevent Gun Violence Youth-Led Group, Team Enough. Uh, we work nationally as a coalition of young people all around the country that work to prevent gun violence, not only um, with legislation, but also in our own local communities. So, in Lonely Heart history, it has been the creativity of young people that often broken through uh, implacable walls of resistance for change. I think of the in Birmingham when young people, ages like 8 to 18, marched against Bull Connor, awoke in the moral imagination of this country, and you, you are definitely in that tradition. And so my question to you is, you, you're, you're doing these things, you're marching against, as you said, NRA-backed uh, uh, politicians. What are some of the other things that you think that are needed to make the change we want? Because you're, you're doing this in a non-violent, profoundly uh, um, uh, inspiring way. Tell me some more things that you think need to be done to make the change we need to make. I think we look at, you know, universal background checks, extremist protection orders, and that's all great, but we also have to look at the root cause of violence, and we really need to have a cultural shift, a cultural change, if we, we have to change the culture around violence. Um, and I also, I think, you know, we think of, yes, all these things, you can go lobbying for legislation, we have to look at the trauma that gun violence survivors have, and we really have to look at the root causes, and the economic reasons, you know, this affects our education. How can we go to school and get a great education? We're thinking about the fact that one of our friends just got shot. Um, so I think we have to look at other root causes of violence, not just the legislation that, which is great. And obviously, NRA back politicians, that's what 50 Miles More is all about. We also have to look at other um, root causes of violence. And, and I love that. I want to I drill down on one of the important cores of what you're saying, which is the idea of trauma and childhood trauma. And how often the, you know the saying hurt people hurt people. If we don't deal with people's trauma, they're either going to let it transform them or they're going to transfer it, as you said, into something negative, right? And that could end up in addiction, it could end up in uh, uh, depression, mental health issues, it could end up in actually violence itself, right? Violence begets violence. And, and so get to the root core of these issues. And so what you're advocating for is not just changing gun laws, but looking at some other policy changes as well. Exactly. All right. Well, then now I will go over here to Bria and ask you maybe to, to step up if, if, uh, if everybody's okay with your... Do I need to stand? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Well, hi, beautiful people. This is so great. I got out of school for this. This is more important. <laughs> <laughs> but um, my name is Bria. I'm an 18 year old senior at Franklin High School. I'm the Milwaukee Youth Council president. Um, yes. Uh, and I also have a, a, a website called honeyfearty.com to give young girls of color a platform to share stories of discrimination and oppression. And after March for Our Lives, I spoke with Curry and Tatiana there uh, to talk about inner city gun violence and having an intersectional conversation of how gun violence is an overarching umbrella of different spectrums. It's so many different things, and oftentimes black and brown people are always overlooked with this platform. So I was a black and brown girl. I came to the, the March for Our Lives rally, and we spoke on that issue. And after that, in June, I was asked to go on the March for Our Lives Road to Change Tour when we went to 65 cities in two months, and we got young people registered to vote. We got young people to have intersectional conversations, healthy and comfortable conversations about why gun violence should be talked about. And I remember going to El Paso, speaking with undocumented youth who were afraid to even use their voices because they did not have a platform that was safe and comfortable for them. I remember going to New York, hugging a woman who's who just lost her son because he was shot and killed, and hugging her and like sharing the story, have this healthy conversation, and even going to California to Oakland, where you think of Oakland to be this 
terrible and violent place with young people that are screaming to be heard, screaming to be able to sit in this conversation and have a chance to speak up their truths. And living in Milwaukee, I live in 53212, which is close to 53206, and I've always heard gunshots. Me and my family had to drop to the floor at times and get back up and just have to smile and laugh about it. And that's the culture of Milwaukee. We smile and laugh about issues because it's normalized, it's conditioned. And that when you're when you're a young person living in this area, you, you hear gunshots outside, you see liquor stores open, you see grocery stores closing, you see violence every single day. We have this culture of normal normalizing injustice. And what do we tell a young black and brown boy that he can't amount to anything because violence is like confining him into this narrative. And so with the Youth Council, we try to control and reform these narratives and promote policies that actually help young people. So when you're talking about like reforming mindsets, reforming culture, that's what we need to do every single day. I'm pretty sure universal background check is hard to do when you have illegal and stolen guns. And these children are being shot and killed by bullets that are that are with illegal and stolen guns, but how can we reform mindsets that we can't result to violence and that young girls like Sandra Park, who was 13 years old, minding her own business, was shot and killed in her room? How do we reform that? And as a young person, I'm often asked, like, you're 18, you should be focused on college. How can I go to college when people who look like me are being shot and gunned down? If I was too young to experience it, then I'm too young, then I'm not too young to talk about it. That doesn't make sense. But for sure, having this conversation with someone who's running for a, a president is so crucial. And I look in this <laughs> and I look in this crowd and who in this crowd is younger than twenty? And I, I know we talked about we have school today, but how can we get more young people to have an intersectional conversation? To be a part of this room. Yes, I have Cory Booker's mic. <laughs> I was, I was in a really important part, and it was very serious. But how can we invite more young people to come into these spaces and feel healthy? And I remember after the Nipsey visual, I sat there and we talked about gun violence, but I was the younger, youngest person in the room. And it's important that we have intersectional conversations because me and Tatiana will be living in Milwaukee, and we need to make sure that our futures are better. We can't just focus on policies for older people or people who actually can vote. But what about the 13-year-old girl who wants to go knocking and canvassing and talk about her story of gun violence? I'm here to represent those people who aren't confident or brave enough or think that they're old enough to speak. Your voice and your courage uh, is extraordinary. I want to ask you just sort of two follow-up questions. Um, this idea of people often miss in our national conversations who are rendered invisible, who are not often at the table. Um, it seems like you have this real purpose of showing a more courageous empathy and, and, and trying to make sure that at the table are people who are most affected by this, young voices and others. Can you tell me about how maybe we all can be leading in that, making sure we're creating those diversity of voices? So my mom is my biggest mentor. I love my mom. She's not here right now. But um, she told me, she was like, Bria, if you consider yourself to be a leader and you have followers, you're not a leader if you're letting your followers just stay as followers. You need to build them up to become leaders as well. And when she told me, I was like, no, I want all the spot. Like, I feel like I have all the knowledge, but I don't. I experience gun violence, right? Like, I hear it every day. I get to the floor. I have all these stories of trauma. I attended vigils of little kids, but 
how am I able to make a diversified platform that every single person who's affected by gun violence can be there? Gun violence is a, a versatile spectrum. It's mass shootings represent 2% of gun violence. It's so small. But we have gang shootings, we have suicide by firearms, we have all these different platforms. How are we bringing every single person in to talk about this? And when you talk about young people coming into conversations that are rendered adult or more like uh, spaces that we're not allowed in, how can you as an older person make this space comfortable? You have that job to do that. Sometimes it's hard when young people are in school, or sometimes it's hard when you can't speak and there's a generational gap, but you have the power to create spaces and pull out a chair so they can sit at the table. And another thing, when you have all these organizations, Milwaukee has a plethora of organizations that do the same work but don't know each other. We have Reggie Moore, we have Reggie Jack, we have all these people in this room networking and getting people out to their events to show up to them. Go to them, understand know what's happening there. Actually have a conversation with someone who's affected, and sometimes it's too much for me. I'm 18, I'm absorbing so much trauma, but that's how I develop and progress as a person. And if we want to be one, a collective body, we need to make sure that we're learning each, 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 each person, sorry, each person's background, understanding that, so we can move forward in gun violence to prevent it from happening. So, so thank you. I, I just want to pull one, one other thing that you did out. So much truth is being dropped, the microphone can't ha ha handle it. Um, <laughs> All right, let's see if we can just power through this. Um, Got me thinking I did. So, yeah, everybody maybe just pull your, the back out of your mic until it's your time to speak. Maybe that's going to help us. Yeah, okay. Maybe that will Maybe it won't. I don't know. But it sounds pretty good now. Um, and we'll just pass this mic. Maybe that's the thing we'll do. We can just put those on the, on the ground or the floor, hand them to somebody. They'll come over and volunteer to do that. Um, I think it's really important uh, what you brought up because... It, it, most people don't often make the connections. And when you talked about meeting with undocumented communities, it's really for, important for us to understand how there's so many threads and cords that produce a climate in which violence happens. And the reason why I think it's so important you mentioned undocumented communities is because what the shift in our immigration laws are doing in our country right now, which local leaders, people who have been mayors or aldermen understand, is that it's actually shutting down undocumented communities from coming forward and engaging in conversations like this, in reporting crimes. You see now people afraid to go to court, afraid to drop their kids off at schools. And what that has done in my community of, of Newark, New Jersey, is it's helped hurt our police from actually getting information that could help them deal with crimes. And people who are victimized and menaced by crime or gun violence are afraid to even come forward uh, uh, and report those crimes. So there, there's, this is not just, so much of us focus, rightfully so, on the NRA, on those people who are being supported by the, the corporate gun lobby, and those are critical issues. And I'm telling you, if, I, if I'm president, I'm going to bring a fight to the NRA like they have never seen before. But I, but I will, but if you, if you just stop there, and the, and the brilliance of your remarks, and not talking about all the other things that are contributing, both of the women uh, on, on my left and right, all the things contributing to the climate of violence, we will not solve this problem. That's why That's why I'm so grateful. You are wearing like one of my favorite t-shirts. Yeah. And I, I, I see them everywhere I go. Yes, and and so I just want to make sure, uh, Heather, uh, can I call you Heather? Yes. Um, Heather, you have a, I read your, your background. It's an amazing background you have. And you're part of an organization that is a national powerhouse. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I'm Heather Driscoll, and I'm a volunteer with Bondsman Action for Gun Sense in America. Yeah, and 
work on changing gun laws for common sense gun reform and also educating people about storing guns safely. Um, but today I'm, I'm here representing myself as a gun violence survivor. Um, I come from a long line of farmers. My great-grandfather was a farmer, my grandfather was a farmer, and my uh, dad was a farmer as well. And uh, when he was 28 years old, he was really struggling. And he developed depression, and he uh, became an alcoholic, and he had all the signs. He started exhibiting suicidal signs, and he ended up going through treatment. And when he came out, they talk about that being like the most critical period of time. And he was coming to terms with everything. And it also happened to be planting season for farming, and things weren't going very well with his farm. Um, so he. Um, decided to take a, his Magnum 44. He drove down a gravel road and he shot himself in the chest. I was two and a half years old and it was a week before my brother turned one. And our whole family was completely devastated by it. And I think that, you know, gun, we talk about gun violence and often we think about homicide when we think about gun violence or we think about mass shootings. But we don't think about the silent epidemic that's happening with suicides, and especially in rural areas we see in Wisconsin. Um, nationally, about two-thirds of gun deaths are suicides, but here in Wisconsin, it's almost three-fourths of gun deaths. Um, and when, when people take, take their lives uh, through suicide uh, with, with guns, they don't want to die. They want the pain to end. Yes. Yeah. yeah, and, and Moms Fan Action, uh, we um, we're, we have chapters nationally. We have a chapter in Wisconsin. We have a group here in Milwaukee and in in Madison. Um, we've done a lot of work on campaigns, getting um, gun set candidates elected because we know that it's very important that we have legislators in office who are willing to have the courage to take action and to change our laws. Thank you very much. I just want to take a moment because the, the statistic which I knew of nationally is about two to one suicides to homicide victims. Uh, here in Milwaukee, it's even larger than that. Are there policy changes that you all are advocating for through Moms Man Action that can address uh, the issues of mental health and, and suicide? Yeah, so one of the laws that we are advocating for is extreme risk protection order, or otherwise known as red flag laws. And that's a law that I, I really believe could have saved my dad, uh, because all of the signs were there. He even said that he wanted to commit suicide. Um, he even called a counselor and said that he, he was going to he was gonna kill himself, and he used a gun. And so if we had a extreme risk protection order, what it does is if you know, if a family member knows that a loved one is in danger of harming themselves, they can talk to law enforcement and a law enforcement official can remove guns from their home temporarily and it's you know through due process, they're able to go through a process and they take those guns and they're able to um, protect that person. And also if, they, if they're a danger to others, that's another way they could use the law too. Thank you very much. Um, being someone who lives in a uh, low-income black and brown community, I travel a lot and find kinship with people who are struggling with the issues that um, that Newark struggled with for so long and still struggles with. 
And I meet sometimes these folks who show a, a kind of courageous empathy of them talking about, but more than that, they show this powerful force of love that, that sometimes stuns me. And you know, I, uh, when I watched after the mass shooting in Charleston, uh, seeing the, the relative of a victim to forgive, to show the kind of love that can forgive someone who did that horrific act, who wanted to start a race war, and, and, and the, the folks who are survivors didn't allow that violence to beget violence, but they showed love in the face of that. In Des Moines, Iowa, there's a state legislator named Akeo, whose son was murdered by gun violence. And then when he found that the young man who did the murder was back in the neighborhood and himself being threatened by other gang members, he took the young man who murdered his son into his home, own home to protect him. Um, there, is, there is, in this country, this force of, of, of love that does not compound, but it transforms. This force of love that, in, in, in a time of deep hurt and pain, when you would understand uh, uh, people's actions that they acted through their anger in, 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 with negativity, there are people that seem to rise to, to challenge us all to, uh, to, uh, to, to love more, uh, not less. Uh, not to emulate what we're against, but to transform it with the power of our spirit. And I say all that because I read your bio, man, and I was blown away by your story. And um, uh, I would love for you to share it with, with me because you, you evidence the kind of love uh, that I was talking about there. Thank you so much. Um, <clears throat> Party Kalika, Serpentine Night, Sick Temple, Wisconsin. Um, I came to this country when I was about six years old, first generation immigrant. I feel the need to say that right now just as where we are with the narrative of where it is. Um, when I came here, I moved to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, grew up here, uh, grew up in probably every neighborhood in Milwaukee. And I became a police officer after I graduated from Marquette University. And, and I did that for about five years. I policed this neighborhood right here. And, and then I became a teacher in the same neighborhood. And I became a teacher and I had People say, did you, did, you, did you get in trouble or something? No, I just, you know, I, I got deep respect for police officers, but I knew that that just wasn't in my, in my heart going forward. Uh, in 2012, as, as uh, Corey talked about, uh, our community, uh, the Sikh community, suffered uh, the deadliest state crime committed uh, in a place of prayer in nearly 50 years, since the time that four little girls endured the impact of a bomb intended for Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. going to church that same day. And after that happened in 1963, the Civil Rights Movement launched into full gear and passed the Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act. And, and I knew at that time, if our response wasn't as strong as the hate crime that was committed upon us, then the likelihood of somebody seeing that at home um, and, and, and saying, you know what, I can, because I'm hurting and I'm hateful, uh, I want to hurt other people. So when we talk about that pain, uh, if that pain is not transformed, it's transferred or sometimes, as you said, consumed. And, and sometimes when we consume it, uh, it is too toxic. So at that time, we knew that we had uh, a responsibility. Uh, we, you know, we knew, I knew that I had a responsibility to myself. So after that, I became a uh, mental health therapist. And I started to really look at the role, the intersection of <coughs> mental health, gun legislation, and, and really uh, the panelists touched on this uh, already. Habituation is one of the biggest things that's leading us to not uh, commit to action. We get used to the soup that we exist in. One shooting, one mass shooting per day. The gun violence that exists in the same neighborhood that we exist in right now. 
and the other one is identity motivated reasoning, meaning that social media and everything that we take in confirms an already held bias that we already believe. And so those that we want to protect the guns, right, continue to digest that narrative. And what we got to do is we got to form a narrative that is about love, forgiveness, compassion, but yet it's also about vengeance. And those two things, you know, in, in our country sometimes we think forgiveness is something that's weak. We think that love is a weakness. For us and our community, we knew that that was the greatest vengeance that we can enact on this white supremacist. You reached out to a, a white supremacist. I mean, you, excuse me? Extremist. Extremist. And, and you reached out to this extremist and started a dialogue that resulted in what? So I, I reached out to, uh, you know, I, I was searching for the why. Why do people do things like this? And I really wanted to get it from a genuine source. I didn't want, you know, we could speculate all the time, but I also wanted someone to say, you know what, I'm accountable. I, 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 I put in place this person who did this same attack. Our shooter was a military vet. He was discharged out of the military. He grew up in Littleton, Colorado. Obviously, those that know gun violence know what you see when you're growing up in Littleton, Colorado. It's the soup of disaster. Okay, so he's growing up there, he goes into the military, he's dishonorably discharged, substance abuse issues, comes back home, joins this movement, he is a well-known threat to the ADL, the SPLC, and is on like people's register. And he legally purchases a firearm a week before the shooting. People know how dangerous this person is, and yet he was able to legally purchase a firearm. So as we have these universal background checks, we also got to make sure that we're implementing those policies and, and creating safety nets to keep this next one from happening. And that's what a lot of me and uh, Arnold Michaelis who works with me and we go around to different communities and really talking about developing those social safety nets uh, uh, as a nation. That's really powerful. That's really powerful. So as a, as a local leader, um, I, I have a saying that you can't lead the people if you don't love the people. And you are someone with that authentic love for your community. You serve it, not uh, because you have a title, you serve it because that's who you are. And my mom used to tell me the title doesn't make the man, the man must make the title. Well, you are uh, a woman who is making the title and giving honor to what you do every single day. And I'd, I'd love for you to give your perspective as well. Thank you. Thank you, Senator. I, I appreciate that. I will be, um, I'll try to be as brief as possible because I think everybody touched on, do I need to stand? No, no, no. You're okay. Um, I think everybody touched on it. Um, and one thing that um, I, try, <laughs> I try not to do is, is, um, is hold the conversation, right? So I'm gonna briefly just, just talk about a little bit about why um, this is important to me, right? So not only as an older woman, um, but a mother of two black boys, um, I am uh, born and raised here in Milwaukee. But one of the things that um, I, I love that you said, Tatiana, normalcy, right? We, especially here in Milwaukee um, and across the country, really, we, um, as black and brown people, we start to have a sense, of no a sense of normalcy when it comes to any type of violence, right? But especially gun violence. We internalize that trauma and then we just push it down and keep moving. And so as a survivor of that, um, I, I absolutely feel what that felt like. 
So I grew up um, in Milwaukee here and ran because I love the fact that we have great people here, but we are dealing with so much trauma and so much, um, especially in this day and age, so much hate that we have to really start changing the conversation. So I'm, I, I understand, you know, we have to have that conversation about mass shooting and changing those gun laws. But right here in our own backyard, we have to have that conversation about how do we change behavior so that the demand for guns is, is diminished, eradicated to the point where we don't even have to talk about that. Because unless we change our legislature, our gun, gun laws are not going to change. So how do we start that right here in our own backyard? And so um, seeing you know, my cousins being gunned down, under 25, both of them. And, my, and having to deal with my uncle who, you know, is surviving that, right? Or being in the car with an attempted uh, carjacker with my children in the vehicle with a gun pointed to my head. So we have to have that conversation because we walk around. I know I did. I walked around um, for months thinking I was okay. But it wasn't until I, I had an episode where I realized I was not okay. And I'm walking around with this trauma and that affects your behavior. It affects your decisions. It affects your entire psyche. So we can talk about how everyone in, a, in some way, shape, or form is dealing with a sense of trauma. And so that's why I, I make it personal. That's why, and this happened well before um, I was elected. I was, I was making it personal then. But now that I have um, this opportunity to sit on the city council and really make and create legislation and push for and advocate for and champion for those types of things. That is one of the reasons why I asked to be a part of the Public Safety and Health Commission because we talk about trauma, it's a public health issue. So if we, If we take a look at that as that, as that as that kind of approach and not just look at it as an afterthought, then we can begin to see some ripple effects, some change in behavior. Because really at the root of it, we're trying to figure out how do you change behavior? How do we um, get to the point where people don't even have to duck in the middle of 4th of July, where you can celebrate fireworks and not have this traumatic experience attached to it? But um, one of the biggest things um, that I, as a council member, uh, was able to push and to support was our Office of Violence Prevention. Changing that, prior to uh, Reggie Moore, which is right here, um, our Director of Office of Violence Prevention. Prior to 2016, you didn't even hear about the Office of Violence Prevention. It was because we have uh, basically a minority-ran council that we began to really push the envelope and say that we are going to be the leaders in this country for, office or, uh, for violence prevention because it needs to equate to the police department budget. It needs to equate to our Department of Public Works budget because it is just that important. And so one of the things when I had my, um, when I had my massive panic attack as I was driving, I called Reggie. I had a freak out act, you know, like, like moment, and that's when I realized that we are dealing with this as a, a sense of normalcy, and we need to start shifting that. So I will turn it back to him. Thank you very much. All right. So I, I wanted to um, let my brother uh, say, make another point that he wanted to add, and then I want to try to see, we've only got about 10 more minutes, but I would love to see if people in the, in the audience have uh, some questions for me personally. 
uh, but also for anybody on the panel, because as you see, there's some amazing people. But go ahead. So I'll, I'll try to make this as quick as possible. Uh, I know that this issue uh, is, is very sensitive and, and incredibly traumatic. So if you are struggling with uh, uh, potential self-harm or in crisis, please call a friend or call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. I personally have called more than 10 times in my life, and I am not at all ashamed to admit that. And I believe especially uh, men need to be able to own their, uh, their, their feelings as well and admit that you need help because it is, it is okay to not be okay. <laughs> 18 years ago, I sat on a very crusty old college-style futon. It was black and hadn't washed a cover ever. <laughs> and I sat on this futon with a loaded 9mm Beretta in my mouth. And I had to literally convince myself why I should not pull the trigger. And it was, I believe, my mom was, was kind of perched there on my shoulder and said, you need to think about your daughter. And so that, that is really why I, I do all this. And I know as an elected party official, it is weird to hear someone like me admit to, uh, to uh, uh, attempting suicide, but I have three times in my life and I'm glad I'm still here. The world is better off with you in it. I can't change the world if I'm not here. And I want to make sure that my daughter, my, my, my two other children know that I'm willing to go fight for them, despite how bad this depression is for me, that it, it is worth it to make sure that the world is a better place, that I have done my part, that I have become my mother's voice, and I have fought for them, and I have fought the good fight, and I appreciate you doing this one. All right, so if you have a question for the panel, yes, sir, please, and speak up if you can. If you want to try to run the microphone, start speaking, start speaking. I'm going to do the Oprah style, get out in the audience quickly. I'm an athlete now. I just played. I just came back from France. My question to you is: Have you reached, or do we reach out to other countries to see their policies? Because I know in France they don't have guns. The police officers don't even have guns, and and it's and it's under control. It was under control until they raised the taxes. Then they started going crazy because they didn't want to pay the taxes, which is what I understand. But do we reach out to other countries to see their policies, to, to pick their brains and have a relationship with them instead of saying, we are the United States of America. This is how we do things. It's a traditional way of thinking. Um, yeah, that's so, just one question, but I have many more. Okay, well, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not running away as soon as we finish. I'm going to stand here for a while, answer questions, take some selfies if people want them. Um, um, but I, I really want to I really want to address this because um, first of all I look up to you in more ways than one. Um, but but my point is is that yes we do. But the problem is we have a Center for Disease Control which is being prevented from doing the levels of research on this issue because we have a government now that is so saturated with folks who are influenced by the NRA and the gun lobby. Yeah. They hand-strap hand, hand us with our ability to actually get into begin to understand what are the best models for reducing violence. Right. And so as long as we have a, 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 a nation that has a leadership that, that is so saturated with not what the people want, because over 90% of Americans agree on a lot of the common sense stuff that's here in this room, but our lawmakers often are not because they are, they are often deeply influenced. So we've got to start beginning to not be afraid to look at what other countries are doing. And I'm not just talking about their policies with guns. I mean, how, how can we live in a nation where we have the most expensive healthcare system on the planet Earth, but we have the worst outcomes? Wow. 
and where, where, when it comes to developed nations, where we lead the planet Earth in infant mortality, in stillbirths, and people being born with, 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 with excuse me, with, with mothers being, uh, being died during childbirth, maternal mortality. So just by having a healthcare system that, that works, and this is one of the reasons why I talk about having healthcare access for everybody in this country being the common value that must drive us every single day, and not tearing apart mental health care with, with physical health care to make sure that we all have access. I, I mean, I literally hear stories in my city of people, I was sitting in a diner in Newark, in, right across the river in, uh, in, in West New York, uh, about people putting aside their mental health medication because they can't afford it because of the cost of prescription drugs in this country. So all of these issues are interrelated, and we've got to find a way, not just to see the best models for interventions, but the will we have to overcome those small minority of powerful people that are preventing us from making change. A, a, a few more questions. I'm going to run down the aisle here to this gentleman. Go ahead. What's your name, sir? Do you play basketball in Europe? Uh, I do not. I play college hockey, but that's a little different. But, uh, I wanted to thank you first, Corey, for mentioning especially Faith Without Works is Dead. And as a seminary student, I appreciate that you spoke up your faith. Uh, but a question I want to ask you is, I'm a city councilman in a city about an hour north of here. And so one of the issues I see that's really important to us that's going to be an issue is our inner city district has had more gun crime in the months of January to March. They've had more gun crime, both violent gun crimes between January to March of this year than we did of all of 2018. So if you are elected president, what would you do to help us in the local aspect of that? So he's asking for those people that did not hear over there that um, what can you do? The last two months we've seen an uptick, it sounds like, in violent crime. Is that correct? More, more, more violent crime in January to March than we did in all of 2018 in our inner city districts. Okay. In his city. In his city, yes. Yes, yeah, no, in his city. So what city? Oh. Yes. Okay, so, so let's let's take a step back. First of all, I appreciate you, you saying, talking from faith, you're a divinity student. I have the saying, before you tell me about your religion, first show it to me and how you treat other people. And there are a lot of people who pray right and then go out and do wrong. And I have found more soulfulness and nice, nice atheists than I have in a lot of mean Christians in my day. Um, so, so I want to, but I do want to, I do want to use your, 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 your sort of spiritual concerns that how can we have gotten to a point in our society where the normalization of this violence is happening in your community as well? And so when you ask me a question about when I'm president, I want to go back to the just say, admitting something, because this is not what you're going to hear often from presidential candidates. Electing one person to office is not going to save our pro or solve our problems. It is just not. I, I really hope that you all put your trust in me and that I can be your next president and do the things I'm going to tell him in direct answer to his question. But I first just want to push back on everybody. Change does not come from Washington. It wasn't a bunch of dudes hanging out on the Senate floor in the early 1900s saying, you know, fellas, let's give those women the right to vote. All right, ready, great. No, it wasn't Strom Thurmond who came to the Senate floor one day and said, hallelujah, I've seen the light. Those Negro people should have some rights. No, no. It was us in this room, people that looked like communities like this, creating rainbow coalitions dedicated to change. And when I say I'm taking a fight to the NRA, I'm not going to telegraph all my punches. You all be surprised at some of the things I'm going to do as president to deal with this lobby. But what I really need is people who are organizing. 
Because the opposite of justice is not injustice, it is apathy, indifference. So many folks sitting on the sidelines, we need to get them into the game. What young people did in, after Parkland, uh, one of the things they did so successfully was they got out there and got other people to be activated. It became the, the, a virtuous uh, virus that went through our community. We need more of that. And so my big ask for you all, everybody here, is do not leave here. This, this is a choice we all have to make every single day, is to accept things as they are or take responsibility for changing them. When Miss Virginia Jones, the tenant president of the projects I lived in, her son was murdered in the lobby of the building in which I live. She never left those buildings. And I couldn't understand. I knew the money she made. And I once asked her, why do you still live here? And this is a tough, tough woman. Five feet and a smidgen tall, but scared me more than UCLA linebackers I used to play against <laughs> in the Pac-12. And she says to me, why do I still live here? It's almost like she's insulted by the question. I'm like, yes, Ms. Jones, why? She goes, why am I still in apartment 5A? And I go, yes, Ms. Jones, that's what I asked. Why? And she goes, why am I still the tenant president since these buildings were built in 1969? And I go, yes, Ms. Jones, why? And she said, because I am in charge of Homeland Security. <laughs> she didn't wait for a title, a presidential appointment. She was going to protect her neighborhood and protect her block. And she was going to make sure she did what was necessary. So the spiritual current challenge I want to give to my brother, and I've studied a lot of theology in my day, but the devil won out when I was thinking about going to divinity school. I ended up in law school somehow. I don't know why. But, but she taught me. I learned. I got my BA from Stanford, but my PhD on the streets of Newark from a lot of incredible teachers like Ms. Jones who taught me that hope is the active conviction that despair will never have the last word. And so I want you to know that's the first thing I need. I am going to be a president that tries to understand the lessons of this incredible woman's mother. That my job is not to lead the people. My job is to ignite in other folks the understanding that they too must lead. That we are going to lead together. That there's no one savior for this nation. That it must be Americans activating other Americans. And I'm going to demand from people, I'm going to demand from NRA members that no, we should not live in a country where someone can be convicted of beating their wife and then use a loophole to go out and buy a gun and kill her. I'm going to be reaching out and demanding that gun owners who know we should not live in a nation where someone could be on the terrorist no-fly list and could go to a gun show through a casual seller and fill up a trunk load full of weapons. I'm going to be coming at folks to ask you to lead with me. That's the first thing I'm going to do. And then I'm going to take on this issue, brother. I'm going to take it on directly at getting guns out of the hands of people. That should not happen. Closing loopholes, closing the boyfriend loophole, closing the gun show loophole, closing the internet loophole. Because I know the data in states that have universal, real background checks, violence against women by their intimates goes down over 40%. That alone will be a step in the right direction. I'm not stopping there. Because this panel was dropping wisdom so hard they broke the microphones for crying out loud. And, and they know that this cannot just be solved with guns, uh, focusing on guns alone. We need to focus on that. But we need to focus on the common sense stuff, like ending the environmental toxins that are poisoning the <coughs> If you have elevated blood level, your executive function is eroded. Your impulse control is, is, will turn apart. How can we have a nation, millions of our children are drinking lead water? Do we love our children or not? Love is not a word. It is an action. It is leadership. <laughs> Number two, we must make sure that mental health care, the stigma that we put on people who are struggling with depression and other mental health illnesses. This brother is one of the bravest, bravest dudes I know I to stand up here. <laughs> 
if he was really brave, he'd just shave the hair. It's getting kind of thin up there. <laughs> but for him to stand here and tell you about the most hurt, that is the kind of thing that we need. And I hate to say this, especially for minority men who have this pride thing going on sometimes, where they don't reach out for help. So I'm going to say take mental health care from the sidelines and bring it to the center, not only the kind of legislation that we're talking about here, about flag laws, red flag laws, but also to make sure mental health care becomes something more that's the center, not a stigmatized part of our society, but talked about and funded, and that we don't treat mental health, health, health in prisons, but yet if people do come to prison, that we have trauma-informed care and mental health care. And, and, then, and then the last thing I'm going to say, because I can go on a lot about what I'm going to do when I'm your president, but I want to give you one more flavor that we're just not hitting straight on. Poverty, poverty is a contributing factor to violence. And we've got to raise wages in this country. We must raise wages. How can we become a society where corporate profits are at 85 year high and wages are a 60 year low. Where we went to a society, my mom has a saying, behind every successful child is an astonished parent. <laughs> we, that was the history of America. We, every generation would astonish the one before. But guess what? 95, 95% of baby boomers did better than their parents economically. For millennials, it's down to 50%. And then we're heaping more things on them, like massive college debt. We're keeping more things on them with unaffordable childcare, more things on unaffordable prescription drugs. So my, one of my main focuses is, as, as, as President of the United States is going to be two things. Lowering the cost of college, prescription drugs. Yeah. I have a lot of ideas like this, but elevating wages. One way I'm going to do that is, is simply something called the RISE credit. Why do we have a tax system that continues to transfer our collective wealth to give bigger and bigger tax breaks to the wealthiest in our country? My generation, X generation, we should be ashamed. We have blown trillion dollar holes in our deficit. And what do we have to show for it? China built 18,000 miles of high speed rail. The only infrastructure we've built that can speak to our debt is we were building a new prisoner jail in this nation every 10 days from the time I was in law school to the time I was married to the city of Newark. We have created mass incarceration as our great towering testimonies to our collective treasure. And I am tired of that. We are going to end that mass incarceration again, going back to poverty. The trillions of dollars we spend as tax breaks for the wealthy and wars overseas we should not have been in. And so what I'm going to do is make a tax code that reflects our values. The RISE credit says enough of this idea that if we just give more tax cuts to the wealthy, somehow it's going to trickle down. We've tried that every, seems like every time we have a Republican president, we're trying that. We're going to give direct tax credits. My RISE credit says we're going to take the income, earned income tax credit and massively expand it so that families now qualify, an individual qualifies for $4,000 back, a couple $8,000 back. Working Americans will get that tax credit, which will raise the wages of 154 million Americans, half of workers, just by doing a direct tax credit for workers. It'll raise them 15 million, it'll cut poverty by a third. But more than that, I want to redefine work. Okay. How many people here know folks who stay home and work hard every day taking care of someone with dementia yeah. or Parkinson's yes. or special needs yes. children? They should get that $4,000 tax credit too because they are doing work. Yes. And so I'm going to be a president that focuses on the holistic aspects that produce a culture where violence has become normalized 
where we can say as a society once and for all, we're not going to leave the planet Earth in incarcerating human beings or seeing people murdered and slaughtered in the streets. We are going to leave the planet Earth in education, in health care, in infrastructure, in job training, because that is not an issue of can we, it's a policy choice. Yeah. One more question. Over here, I'm sorry, this young, this incredible woman here. Yes, who's taking like notes. All right. Uh, my question is, you're talking about the RISE credit. Yes. Is that a part of the reparations bill? Oh, wow. Wow. Woo! Yeah. So, um, reparations, so the short answer is no, these are two different things. And, and I have a lot of things that address persistent inequalities in our country. One of the things that's getting a lot of attention, because Columbia University said it will virtually eliminate the racial wealth gap, is my simple idea. And by the way, all of these things you can pay for by reversing the Trump tax, uh, tax uh, uh, breaks and, and starting to do things that are common sense, like tax capital gains, like ordinary income. What does that mean? That if you have a Picasso, my brother here buys a Picasso, and, and drops a million dollars on the Picasso. Um, and then he sells it three years later at Christie's auction for $15 million. He pays a lower tax rate than, than, than you who might go out and work hard every day with sweat to get your income. Why is he getting a different tax treatment for Picasso selling than you get earning your money like my, my grandmother did or my great-grandmother did? People who are domestics who wash floor have jobs with dignity that's been stripped away because they no longer have retirement security and the like. I want to tax those things at the same rate, ordinary income. That alone could pay for this next idea, which is that every child born in America should get a child savings, an interest-bearing account, a baby bond, have $1,000 placed into it in an interest-bearing account. Now, every American has a birthright, got that in their, into an account. And then every year, based upon your parents' income, you get upwards of $2,000 more, so that by the time you're 18, the lowest income Americans would have up to $50,000 in a savings account that they could use to create wealth for, their, for their, them and their families. Go to college, get workers training, start a business, buy a home. That alone, giving everybody that equal start would eliminate racial wealth disparities, which are 10 to one in this country right now because of laws in our past that were specifically written to exclude people of color. You all know the redlining and the mortgage discrimination, and we had a, a, a nation that did things like design social security to exclude those professions where African Americans were in. We have a country that even the GI Bill had, had, was, was not available to many African Americans coming home from, from, from. So, so the reparations bill that I have doesn't just exclude all of these things I'm doing. The reparations bill that I'm leading in the Senate, along with another member of the Congressional Black Caucus, has said, hey, we don't have all the answers, but let's bring together the best minds in our country to study this issue and how we can get back to a place where we're going to have equal opportunity for everybody. Unless I'm getting the sign, I'm not getting the sign. I'm going to ask a bunch of one more question right here. You know, but I'm going to do one here, one up high, okay, and then we're going to then we're going to then we're going to close it out, okay? All right. Then we're going to do a speed round with the panel. I want the panel to be thinking about one sentence when people leave here, something they can take with them that they can do. Constructive action. Everybody give them one thing to do. The most common way people give up their power is not realizing they have it in the first place. This is a powerful room if everybody took a small action. So go ahead. Hi, my name is Rachel. Um, thank you for um, speaking out and 
on gun violence. Um, I know that you've also spoken up against the environmental racism of animal agriculture with Smithfield and other factory farms cause, causing major harm to largely low-income people of color communities with little to no accountability. The state of Iowa has recently reinstated an ag-ag law which criminalizes whistleblowing against companies like Smithfield, even criminalizing something like taking a photo. What is your position on ag-ag? So, does everybody know what ag-ag laws are? No. So, um, we have incredible farmers in our country. The first entrepreneurs were farmers who did incredible work. They were stewards of their land. But our farm sector, as, as we are driving out uh, independent family farmers, squeezing them through a lot of corporate consolidation where their share of the consumer dollar, when you buy that broccoli or that ear of corn, that share of that dollar you spend going to farmers has gone down like 50%. The independent family farmer is in crisis right now. While the large, massive agro-businesses have been coming in, I sat with a Republican farmer in Western Illinois telling me about these massive CAFOs that moved into their area. What are CAFOs? These concentrated animal feeding operations that have not the way that we've raised pigs and cattle in the past. They concentrate them in these areas, and then they black out the windows so nobody can see in and see the way that they're treated. And some of the things that are going on are so awful that they know if the public knew there would be a backlash against them. So they passed these laws called ag-gag laws that if you're caught going up to one of these windows and taking pictures of what's happening to the animals, you can be prosecuted for that. And so that to me is outrageous. It's a violation of free speech. It's a violation of the fundamental ideals about the free press. And it's something that I'm patently against and I've spoken out against for years. But more than that, I want you to understand that a lot of these massive capos that with their huge lagoons often, they don't even have, they can't even deal with the waste from the animals, so they create these massive lagoons that happen to be usually in low-income communities. So if you go to the, the Smithfield you talked about, down in the low-lying areas of North Carolina, for example, I went down there to meet with a community, a, a low-lying, mostly African-American community, people who've been on their land for generations. Now when Smithfield moved in and created these massive lagoons of, of feces, and then they spray them on what's called spray fields. The spray, I watched it mist into these communities. And when I met with a, a, a group of the African-American leaders, they said they can't open their windows, they can't run their air conditioning, they can't hang their line, the value of their land has gone down, they have respiratory illnesses, cancer clusters, they can't fish from their lakes and rivers. This is going on all over America. And so again, as a guy who lives in a city with super fun fights, two super fun, fun fights with sites within five miles of me, Poison water. When I created community farms, I said, look, we're going to give guys, men and women coming home from prison, jobs, farming, so we can end food deserts, have food for our community. I was really excited. Our state EPA said, you can't plant in the soil here in Newark. And I'm like, why not? There's too many chemicals and toxins in that soil. So we had to do it all in planter boxes. Environmental injustice is a common pain, whether you're living in rural areas or whether you're living in inner cities. And we need to have a president that is not going to tolerate the poisoning of their own people, nor sanction laws that undermine the ability of people to keep their justice. All right? Oh my God. He's not listening. Oh my God. He's one of my, one of my, he's my, he's my, my heroes up there. All right, go ahead. Do you know that man next to you? Okay. This is your, this is your, this is your, this is your, this is not your, this is not your kin. You're not related to this gentleman, are you? Oh, you love him. 
Love creates relationships. Okay, go ahead with your question. I'm still kind of shocked that I'm seeing him up there. Go ahead. What's your name? My name is Shadavy. All right, Shadavy. Yes, yes, you're right. I want to give a snap to that question. Um, so today, I'm going to stand back a little bit. Um, so you cannot have a vibrant democracy without a great system of public education. They're incompatible. And, and right now, we, we see teachers in our schools doing Herculean efforts trying to deal with all the work that we're not doing as a society. I see teachers who reach in their own pockets to pay for things for their kids. I see teachers working really hard where they get a kid in kindergarten who's already well behind because we don't have a system of universal preschool. Uh, I, I, see, I see teachers who are trying to deal with the challenges of special needs killed children that often are born with special needs because they had parents that were drinking water with lead or doing things that didn't actually help the development of that child when they were in vitro and so when they, when they were in the prenatal stages. And so I want you to know before I even get to your K-12 education question, I want you to know that I, I want us to lead the developed world, not follow them like we are, during the time that the brain is developing. We are going to make sure and th that our nation goes back to the top of having the best system for prenatal care. And that means in communities like Milwaukee, communities like Camden and Newark, it means us doing things that some people think, oh, that must might be expensive, Corey. Like, let me give you an example. Just having nurse-family partnerships, having nurses go home to, to, to us, uh, uh, women with special needs and visiting them and telling them what to be eating and what to be doing, it dramatically lowers rates of abuse and neglect. It dramatically increases the well-being of a child. For every dollar we spend on interventions like that, we save taxpayers $5. So why aren't we doing that? There are things that we could be doing, like doulas for, uh, 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 for, for, for uh, doulas should not be something for just wealthy women. We know the impact that a doula could have in communities helping women deal with the complicated things of having kids. So when I think about education, I start at the time of pregnancy. It starts there, and it gets all the way to me have a conviction to make sure we have paid family leave, universal preschool, and more. And so I want to I I go on to K-12 real quick and give you a couple things I'm going to do if I'm your president. Number one is the Department of Education on the federal level was created because of equity issues. Because some kids weren't getting a great education, other kids were. I think we've really fallen down on creating that equity. So if I'm in charge of the United States of America, I'm going to make sure that our children in our schools have schools that are that where the federal government is fully funding special needs education. Right. We're falling down and paying only about 18% of our commitment. I'm going to make sure it's fully funded, which is going to bring a lot more resources to all of our schools. Number two, teachers. The teaching profession is under assault. And we need to make sure that teachers 
salaries are raised. Why should a hedge fund worker get better tax treatment than a teacher? So I'm going to raise teacher salary, forgive teacher student debt, and make sure that they have a way. Now, you're concerned about college as well. The college debt, yes, yeah, so we've got, a, we got an amen chorus there. Um, the college issue is, is outrageous to me right now because we're saddling our kids with too much debt. So you're going to have a president that's going to make sure that we're going to have debt-free college pathways for all of our young people. For people who already have student debt in here, we're going to let you refinance your debt, which you can't right now. For people who already have debt in here, we're going to let you discharge your debt. Uh, uh, why can't bankruptcy laws apply to all debt instead of just home ownership and, and the like? But even more than that, we're going to make sure that the federal government stops profiting off of the backs of students, because the student loan program right now is creating billions of dollars of profit, which should be reinvested but the last thing I've got to say, because I come from Newark, and, and all, I always say everything I need to know in life I learned uh, uh, being a mayor of a big city, is that all my kids don't go to college. And we need to make sure that there are pathways. In fact, only 35% of American kids do. And why do we have this, this steam problem where we say the only way to be successful is to be college? You go to college? So there are a lot of ways we see other societies doing things to create the best apprenticeship programs on the planet Earth. Well, enough of that. We are going to create the best apprenticeship programs in America to make sure every child has a pathway to career success. Okay? Real quick. We're going to go. This is a speed round. See if you can everybody get 30 seconds, Mo. Is that okay? Mo is my former chief of staff. 15 seconds. Okay, here we go. One thing this crowd can do to change, and I'll wrap up and we'll be done, and I'll stick around for a little bit. Go ahead. 15 seconds. Lightning round. I would say that the easiest thing you can do is to not just show up to big events like this, but show up in the state house, show up in the city hall meetings, to make sure that your voice are heard. Because if they, if you don't show up, they're going to be doing something you don't like. Right. Um, something that we didn't address is police brutality, and I just want to say that's also gun violence, and get the work with police relations also in Milwaukee, Milwaukee, Nashville. I would say. Having intersectional conversations, including on people, so we can have movements that progress forward. We can use all your energy in the room with Mom Man Action. If you can, if you have your cell phones, you can get them out and text ready to six four four three three. Hold on, one more second. Everybody say it twice. Okay, thanks. Yeah, text ready to six four four three three. Thanks. Staying connected, staying committed, uh, you know, we can be inspired, but we got to be committed. And that, committed, that commitment takes you knowing that you are the embodiment of love. So we are grateful. Thank you for coming out. Two things I would say. Read the blueprint. This is uh, from the people, by the people, and sponsored by the Office of Violence Prevention and pushed by the council. And the, um, the trauma re uh, response team, if you are dealing with trauma, if you know someone who's dealing with trauma, make sure you get a hold of them. So I'm going to end with two things that I want you all to remember. One is one of my mistakes and one is a challenge. When I was running for mayor of the city of Newark, there were some young men that hung out in the lobby of the projects I was living in. I watched them grow up, but one night I'd come home and i smell marijuana. Uh, and I'm telling you, at Stanford campus, kids did marijuana all the time with different consequences. Marijuana enforcement is targeted towards low-income, poor, and disproportionately minority kids. So I knew there was a problem. I intervened with these kids. I started bringing the movies. They were living in my building. And I, one of them was this amazing young man in Hassan, Washington, who was just a few floors below me where I lived. It reminded me a lot of my dad, the same sense of humor, the same leadership, natural leadership qualities. But then I got busy. I got busy running for mayor. 
and I didn't follow through on all the things I was intending to do with those kids, but in my mind I thought, well, I'll just become mayor and everything will be okay. I could take care of all kids. And so I would still come home at night. They would still be in my lobby and they would cheer me on. They would cheer me on. Literally, they'd be like, we're going to make you mayor, man. We're going to vote for you. I'm like, you're not 18. <laughs> they were the greatest kids in the world. I get elected. I get elected. And immediately I had death threats as mayor, so they put police officers in the project, safest as the projects have been in a long time. But, but the kids, you all know this, you're not going to hang out where the cops are hanging out. And so the long story short is the kids weren't there anymore. I lost track of them. But one month into my time as mayor, I show up at a shooting in our city. There's a body covered, another one being loaded in an ambulance. And I'm ministering to the living. I'm talking to the residents. It's not who we are. We're going to change this, I told them. We're going to turn the city around. We're going to... I told them all the ideas, all the plans, and we eventually did to lower violence, but I barely paid attention to the humanity on the sidewalk. I went home that night to steal two hours of sleep just to try to get whatever I could before I went back to, to being mayor, and I pulled out my Blackberry back then, and I was looking through the reports at the end of the day, and I saw the homicide report. It said homicide, and it named the victim. It was Hassan Washington. God had put this boy right in front of me. He, he was just like my dad, born to a single mom, just like my dad, born in a segregated community, just like my dad, raised by his grandmother, but this time it was just a few floors below me. I went to his funeral, and everybody was there, and it was at Perry's funeral home in the lower part of the building. It, I didn't like going there because it was like, descending into the bowel of a ship. I, it was like these rickety stairs. And there we were all, chained together in grief, piled in on top of each other in the bowel of that, of that building, just moaning and groaning for another everyday reality in America, another boy in a box. And I remember, I'm the mayor of the city now. I was just elected. It was 2006. I, I, I was supposed to be the leader, but I couldn't. I was hurting so much. I felt such shame that I didn't even stay. I ran out of there, jumped into my fancy new mayoral SUV, ran, drove to the, to the city hall, ran into my office, slammed the door for the first time as mayor of New Jersey's largest city. I just left. And all I could see thinking is, my dad, they were there for my father when he was in trouble. Another family took him to their home when he was in trouble. A church gave him money to go to college when he was in trouble. Folks were there, and where were we? Everybody was gathered there in that room for his death. But where were we for his life? And so I'm telling you right now, as a guy now that says, I don't care how busy I am. I was texting with my mentees this morning. I may be running for the biggest office in the land, but I've learned in my life that the biggest thing you can do in any day is most often going to be a small act of kindness, of decency, of love. We must be leaders of love. We must be agents of love. We must not let despair have the last word. We must awaken the love and the conviction in everybody. These problems aren't bigger than us, but somehow we have a poverty in this nation a poverty of compassion, a poverty of empathy, a poverty of love. Patriotism is love of country, and you cannot love your country unless you love your fellow countrymen and women. And love says, I will work for you. Love says, I will sacrifice for you. Love says, I will struggle because injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Let us all be determined on this day 
You may not be able to change the world, but you can make a world of change on this day to someone on this issue. Created some community here today. Come up and hug a panel member today. Say something to somebody you don't know today. Reach out, repair the fabric today. Because today, I believe, as a small group as we are, today is the beginning of us transforming our tomorrows. Thank you, everybody.